Dr. James Ransom is the chief scientist for CyberFOS, an early-stage cybersecurity startup. He's also a member of the board of directors for the Bay Area Chief Security Officer Council and serves as an advisor to For All Secure and Resilient Software Security. Dr. Ransom's career includes leadership positions in the private and public sector. He served as CISO, Chief Security Officer, and Chief Product Security Officer across a number of different organizations. During this time, he's been building and enhancing developer-centric, self-sustaining, and scalable software security programs that are holistic, cost-effective, and operationally relevant. Brooke Schoenfeld is the author of Secrets of a Cybersecurity Architect and Securing Systems, Applied Security Architecture and Threat Models, and Building in Security at Agile Speed that he authored with Dr. Ransom, which that book focuses on software security for continuous development practices and DevOps. Brooke helps clients with their software security and secure design practices. He mentors technical leaders to effectively deliver security strategy, and he consults as a technical leader for True Positives LLC and SEC Consult America's Holistic Security Architecture Services. These gentlemen join us today to talk about this book that they've just written called Building in Security at Agile Speed. We're going to ask them a number of questions about the book, but also questions about how they've been successful in maturing software security programs. So you don't want to miss this conversation with Dr. James Ransom and Brooke Schoenfeld. You're about to listen to AppSec Podcast. When you're done with this, be sure to check out our other show, High Five. Hey folks, welcome to this episode of the Application Security Podcast. This is Chris Romeo, CEO of Security Journey and co-host of the podcast. I'm also joined today by my good friend, Robert. Robert, how are you this fine day? Hey Chris, doing well. Yeah, Robert Hurlbut, Threat Modeling Architect, and uh, really excited, as we always are, about our topic today. Most definitely. And so we are joined today by Brooke Schoenfeld and James Ransom. And Brooke has been a guest of the podcast a number of different times. And I'm just going to recount the story because we just talked about it a second ago as we were preparing about one of one of the recordings we did with Brooke at the RSA conference a number of years ago. And we were sitting and <laughs> we were sitting outside the bathrooms because it was so busy. And so there was a little bit of a kind of a flush noise behind, but a great conversation. So I'll put that link in the show notes to so you can go back and find that uh, those other episodes we've done with Brooke. But Brooke, gl- glad, to, glad to have you back back on the AppSec podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I, I mean, I love doing this and and you're both, you know, among my dear friends anyway. So yeah, all good. Thank you so much. Okay, Dr. Ransom, we're going to come to you for your security origin story. So Brooke has already provided his in a previous episode, but we like our listeners to be able to get a perspective about how did you get into security? What drew you into this, this thing that we do. Well, I think it's, uh, I've always strived for positions related to jobs where I thought I could help people, organizations, and actually the country at large. I spent 23 years in various roles in the U.S. government. I was a U.S. Marine sergeant and retired as a U.S. Navy commander and intelligence officer, as well as uh, I had an early retirement from Department of Energy, Lawrence Livermore National Lab, as a national security scientist and geospatial intelligence analyst. And I was also uh, on the nuclear emergency search team there as a senior leader in weapons technology intelligence analyst. And in between all this, I was also a U.S. special agent specializing in foreign counterintelligence for three years with NCIS. 
but I gradually developed new skills while I was still in the government and cybersecurity so I could transition to the government world, because especially when I was getting closer to retirement. My first corporate job was as a CISO role for applied materials back in 1997. So I've been on this side for quite a while now. And since that time, I've served in seven CISO, CSO roles, a couple of technology senior executive roles related to security. And over the last few years, I've been focused on chief product security officer type roles. Obviously, those titles aren't really in vogue yet, but that's what they're calling them, very similar to the uh, back in the CISO days in the 90s, people had CISO roles, but not everybody had that title. But that's what I've been focused on over the last few years and been working very closely during that time with Brooke. And early on in my corporate uh, career, I also completed a PhD in information systems, specializing in information security. And I just recently completed my 12th uh, cybersecurity related book of which Brooke was the co-author. And that's about it. That's that's kind of what my journey has been over the last, um, God, it's almost 46 years doing security related work now. Wow, that's incredible. And uh, before we even jump in, you know, I just want to mentioned that the book that we're talking about building insecurity at agile speed i've got my copy right here so i am an owner of this book and they didn't even send it to me it's my own copy because i wanted to i wanted to read this and i wanted to learn i know these these gentlemen have decades and decades of experience and and i look up to both of you as people that i can always learn new stuff from and so that's why i'm super excited about this because i legitimately have lots of questions for you so but i'm gonna let robert ask the first question for this interview yeah, and same. Uh, just uh, enjoy your books as well. I mean, that's how I uh, actually became acquainted with Brooke is is reading uh, your book, uh, Doctor Ransom, a, a number of years ago, and and then going from there. So, really, really great pleasure to have uh, you on the podcast today, uh, Doctor Ransom. My first question is: Why do you focus more emphasis on the importance of people in process in secure code development? rather than technology or over technology? I'll start, I'll do it more from a DevOps perspective. And I think DevOps is more of a engineering cultural change than a process change as it prioritizes people over process and process over tooling. Uh, building a culture of trust, collaboration, and continuous improvement, of course, enables the acceleration of the software development lifecycle. And as you've already seen over the last few years, actually a couple decades, the agile movement led to a cultural shift from command and control to team empowerment. And DevOps moves that shift forward and beyond. And that's something that both Brooke and I have a really big passion on. We kind of go at it a different way, but we also go at it collaboratively and it's worked out very successful for us. And DevOps also is more of an engineering cultural change than a process change as it prioritizes people over uh, process and tooling and building a culture of trust, which is the most important thing, collaboration and continuous improvement enables the acceleration of the, not only the software development cycle, but also the, it provides the ability to have a robust security development life cycle within that SDLC. Um, you can also, as you've also seen over the last, uh, I guess probably just over two decades also, is the agile movement led to a cultural shift from command control to team empowerment. I talked about from command and control what it did there, but also team empowerment. Again, a specialty of Brooks and I when we're teamed up together. And basically DevOps moves that shift forward and beyond coding to a holistic view 
of software development and operations. And basically, you know, from that standpoint, from an architecture standpoint, that's what our book's about. It emphasizes not only the people part, but also process and technology, that people come first to make your uh, program successful, particularly in a DevOps uh, situation. So is that kind of why, like, I was gonna, I was just thinking to myself, like, you know, I've read the book, I've, I've spent a lot of time kind of understanding what went in here, but why this book, why, and why now? And Brooke, maybe you can give me your take on that one. And then James, I'd love to hear yours as well on this one, because like a lot of people write books and I know why I think it is, but I want to, I want to get your perspective well, on why now. First off, because my dear friend, James Ransom asked me to, to, to do it. That that's one of the most important things here. And I pretty much followed James into the pits of hell if I had to. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of that. There's a piece of that that's personal, I think. But I think the book now, we, we wrote Core Software Security, or I contributed to it. James and Anmol wrote it, a lot of it. Um, but I, I did my fair share, about 30,000 words. That's, that's a pretty good addition. And uh, it was based on our agile understanding. And I mean, I've been working with agile for a while as a security person. So I'm pretty agilized, not a word in English, but still, it's the best way I can say it. I'm really into it. I work my own projects in an agile way. Um, and so, you know, it, it, we, we, we had as much as we could learn and do. And we, at that point, we had maybe one of the first, the first truly agile uh, soft, uh, security development life cycles out there. And we developed that really specifically. Um, but we've learned a lot and the world's changed. So DevOps was some teams were experimenting with it at that time. Let's say 2013, 2014. There were DevOps teams. There were CICD chains. That wasn't like that common. And mostly it was in startups and people were experimenting or just getting going elsewhere um, with that. Um, cloud use, people were going into the cloud. There was a lot of concern about cloud um, and, you know, where you run. Roll forward to 2020 when we're busy cranking this book out. Um, and these are commonplace. You, you, you don't write. You do. So, I mean, you write firmware for your for your local, you know, piece of hardware or whatever. But when you're doing major things and even a lot of like application um, coding is and testing is done in the cloud because you can get a whole bunch of machines that are all different versions and do your testing or whatever. So the cloud is now normal. I, I love to see the, um, vet, you know, marketing materials that still come up and say, are you worried about going to the cloud? And I'm thinking, who isn't in the cloud? Who isn't using major clouds? I haven't run into that for years now, right? And, and, and who isn't, doesn't have some, doesn't make use of some like agile thinking in their development? Very few places. And I work with a lot of clients and I have to assess their, their, their security, you know, software security practices a, a lot of the times and figure that out. And, and trust me, not completely non-agile with nothing taken from the agile movement is very rare now and very specific. 
people who maybe write firmware or working on hardware interfaces and stuff like that, where, where it's very, the compile cycle, the build cycle is very torturous. You really want to get it right before you go through that, right? But for most development, there's at least some nod to Agile. So that's normal. And then, you know, wherever really fast tools for deploying and releasing and can be used, whether it's it's continuous or not is is you know a function of the context, but uh, all of that's normal, and we really wanted to update to how people build software today, not how people build software ten years ago, but how do they do it today, and and show that you know security is it's it's not in the way; it's part of what you do, just part of what you do. Um, and, and I don't think, you know, there were some things we said in core software security, or I said, I'll, I'll tell you that, that are a little embarrassing considering how software is built. So getting a chance to correct that and say, no, this is how you should think about it. Like we were still thinking about threat modeling as more or less point in time. And, and, you know, Chris, you and Robert and I have talked just gobs about iterative, keeping the threat model is just part of what you do in order to do design well, right? It's not a, a thing you do, it's it's something, it's a foundation and you just do it, you know, and, and it goes along and it's never perfect. Well, we wanted to say that and we didn't say that in core software security. So there was a lot of updating in, in technique and learning since then that really was, once I got into it, was very important to me personally to get it get up to date with my thinking today. And that's the problem with the book. It's a point in time. You say the best thing you can in that moment. You know, in five years, I hope I'm not too embarrassed about what I said in building in security at agile speed. I'll just leave it at that. James, you have anything to to jump in here with? Well, yeah, I think also. Yeah, I do. Thanks for that. That, that was great. The, the one thing I'd add is getting back to the people part again and why we wrote that. The people part's even more important now as people have said, we're going to automate everything. So if we do dev, I hate the word DevSecOps, but if you're going into DevOps where security is actually built into it, um, it's not just automation because the key element of the talent that you have to have in a DevOps organization, and hopefully they're reporting into engineering, they're not an overlay from the CISO, which we may talk about later, um, is it the software security engineer, evangelist, mentor, whatever you want to call them. We call them product security uh, champions. Sometimes they're called software security champions. There's even some other words for them. But they need to be developers first and security experts second as part of each product or application development team. And that gives them ability to grow software security architects over time. And that's what we talk about because ultimately – these folks that are in in these teams should strive to be, that should be their pipeline to be architects over time. Sure, they start out as a security engineer, or they may even be a prospective security engineer that came over, you know, as a junior developer or something. But again, they should be developers for security second. It's much easier, as I say in most of my talks, to train a developer how to do security than it is an IT person that's never coded before in many cases, there's some exceptions, but to train them in to do uh, development. It just usually isn't going to happen. In fact, a lot of the CISOs and CSOs I know nowadays 
they're going back, learn, the younger ones are going back to learn how to program because this role has become so important in today's world. So that's another reason. First, you know, the first one that Brooke already said is that we needed to update everything. You know, it's been out that other book, the other book, the core software security has been out there, what, 10 years, 12 years, something like that. And then, uh, and we had to update not only that, but to just to remind people, uh, that, that there's something more than just automation to all this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, I just, one of my recent article that I published uh, on Tech Beacon was why everyone in cybersecurity needs to learn how to code. And I called out CISO, GRC, threat analyst, and of course, you know, AppSec. That was, that was the easy section to write. But yeah, it's, I think that's so crucial for folks now. Like if you want to have any impact in, in security, you just have to have that foundational understanding of how to code. And I was, I was literally having a conversation with somebody that I was mentoring two hours ago. And, and that's what I told her. I said, you're not going to write production code, right? Like you don't want my code in production. Robert's heard this before. I, you know, my, my code is dangerous. <laughs> all of our code's dangerous. But the fact that I understand the mechanics, all of ours, yeah. I mean, could you imagine all the four of us building a web app? What would happen? Like, it would be like OWASP <laughs> top 10 nightmare probably at the end of the day. But um I think it'd be actually be really secure. It would just be like 10, 20,000 lines of code to do return one, one response or something. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, you know, my, my code's not in production. It's the fact that, that all of us, we have an understanding of how object orientation works. And that's what allows us to talk to developers because developers can sniff out if we don't know what object oriented, oriented programming is and, you know, to your point about, you know, there's a lot of stuff in your book now about the people and the culture side. Right. Developers can they can tell if we don't know what we're talking about, if we don't they understand. Can. I mean, world. If I could say the thing is that there aren't enough security people to to make the software secure, even in a modest environment. But when you have 50,000 developers, you're not going to hire one security person to be looking at code for every 10 of those. It's not going to happen there aren't that many security people. And, and you know, I realized this a long time ago. What's interesting is James and I didn't know each other at the time when I realized this, and we were both doing the same thing. We were both pointing our way to what I eventually call developer-centric security. We were both saying, no, the developers are gonna have to do this, and how do we empower and, and help them? And we were both tending, this is back in the aughts, uh, you know, and, and, and then we've kind of found each other in the, in the universe or actually John Stewart found us for each other. Um, that's the actual truth, but, um, uh, you know, and then we could link up in, in our, in our thinking, <laughs> but, um, I realized we weren't going to scale. There was no way. And when you consider there are 28 million, this is Evan's data estimate, 28 million programmers on planet earth today. That's that's our 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 problem space, and no way are you gonna you, you can't keep control of that. It's already we're way past that point. So I'm gonna quote James. He says it's when we're working together, actually at roles, you know, and employed by the same company or on the same client or whatever. James is always saying, "You do say this if you can't trust developers with the code." They already have it. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And I think it's a kind of a mind shift to realize that it's not, it's a people problem and it's a security trust problem. So I like to point out that it's not 
trust but verify because that but says I don't really trust you. I'm going to check up on you like I'm the cops. It's trust and verify. How can we all verify because we're all going to make mistakes and stuff's going to happen? How can we give you the tools and the processes and the training and the, I mean, you're so dedicated to this. Both of you are, Robert and Chris, to training and imparting knowledge and everything. Um, how can we do that most effectively so that you can do it? Because ultimately, I can't do it for you, even though I can have written hundreds of thousands of lines of commercial code, by the, by the way, um, in a past life. So, you know, I did at one time. <laughs> was actually at least reasonably competent at this game. Um, not anymore. The languages have all moved on. But uh, nevertheless, you know, I, I, I have written a lot of really interesting code um, in, in my time. That was a long time ago. But um, we can't do it. I can't do it. There's no way. Instead, what you're going to ask me is look at this piece of code. Notice that oh. there's actually no no issue with it. And this static analyzer is telling me I have a problem. What do I do? That I can do. But I can't go and, you know, that's the real problem. 28 million programmers on planet Earth. I, I think another thing to add to that, uh, Brooke, you just reminded me, is that the other thing we wanted to do is have something that was generic enough that fit as many organizations as possible. Because... We were pretty proud of a couple of programs we developed together, but then we realized that they were cultural centric for the cultures we were working with, um, the corporate cultures, that is. And so uh, one of the things, not only that we wanted a generic SDL, but we wanted things that could be applicable to everybody, no matter whether they were in um, application security or product security, if you differentiate between the two, and if you were a large, small, or medium-sized company. So the next specific question that we wanted to ask is, you know, about when a program reaches self-sufficiency and maturity, um, what, what examples can you share? Because I know both of you have built many programs, worked and consulted on, on many programs. And so we've got a lot of people that are listening that are in the midst of building programs, or maybe they're, they're early people and you know, maybe let's even just pretend they're maybe a little bit discouraged. Like we've all been at different points in building programs. Like what's success for them? What is self-sufficiency? What is maturity? What, what should they be looking forward to in the future to say, wow, this is, uh, this is, this is what, it, when I'll know I, that our program has kind of arrived. Go ahead, James. You want me to start with that one, Brooke? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I this Brooke old, this guy I know has a whole bunch to tag on to this particular one I'm the example I'm going to use. So this is Brooke and I both working on building a program for a few years. And we had dedicated product security champions for each product and actually each product group. It was, it was really nice. And it had the support from the uh, VPs and the head of engineering. Actually, the head of engineering hired me. I said I did not want to do that from a CISO perspective. I actually wanted to do it in engineering. So that was a plus. And so, you know, once we had everything approved through the VPs of each uh, development organization, because we had quite a few at this particular company, um, it made it a lot easier to push things in the future. So we developed a, together a robust training program. We had a mature P-CERT over time, product security incident response team. 
We had a satisfactory budget because this had been baked in beforehand. And we even had developed a quantifiable product security uh, maturity program, which is now publicly available. It was, it was really cool. We did all, it was very painful. Uh, talk about going to the, as Brooke put, the depths of hell a few times, I think, as we went through that. Those are some things that happened. But it was at this one moment when the group of senior architects, actually a small group, and product security champions basically said, told both of us, I think they might have done it, but particularly myself, because I ran the, the program, said, go away. We got this. We don't need weekly meetings anymore. We could do monthly, but continue your oversight and support when needed. That's when I felt that, man, we've really arrived. And these guys were competent, too. They were developing their own training programs because some of the ones weren't. They were doing the uh, TED-type talks. They were doing uh, all they'd been mature enough, and they were growing their own all their own product security champions within their own organization. So it was self-sufficient and so forth. Brooke's got a tagline for that that I think sounds much better. But Brooke, maybe you can talk about some of the things we did when we uh, developed that one. Because I don't know if you, I can't remember the individual or individuals that said that, but I was kind of, I drew back a bit and said, wow, what is it? And I said, oh, this means we've arrived. It does. Um, so, so, we don't need, because we didn't do it with a large program. We train the trainer. Yeah. There's a there's a virality, a virality, a, a an organic, you know, viral viral nature of things that begins to show itself, and it 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 it'll manifest. Since we require everybody, not require, but encourage everyone um, to to share their skills. That's how you build. You know, uh, and 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 the people who are moving to the to the upper echelons must. They're required to train skills, um, and and it's a it's a mark of your and that that was part of their distinguished engineer what they call principal engineer but distinguished engineer program anyway. You got to be mentoring people and sharing what you know. Um, so if you wanted to go that route in your career, you had to do it anyway. But we were encouraging people, you know, uh, anyway. And when you start to see that teaching, and it's several generations, so that the people you originally taught. I've been teaching and their students are teaching and their descendant students are teaching, then that's one sign. So you're looking for this, that people care, because that shows a motivation. I care about this. You've done the cultural change that says security is important. I don't have to do, talk about that anymore. Everybody's got it, right? And and that 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 it's starting to have its own life as you will. So teaching is one um, uh, ability to say, no, no uh, uh, um, building their program. So eventually if you first start with maybe a, a senior person who is the, who's the head for a group, but they, they then, you know, start teaching and, and training and working with a whole crew of people who are carrying out stuff. And those people become your, your um, security architects or engineers or whatever and and they start full, flowing into the program so that that virality that nature of organic building is taking place without you doing anything anymore that's number one um as the number of threat models now, now imagine i'm the most i'm i'm in, i'm in charge or you know i'm leading that's my title product security architecture so threat modeling is my baby right when I'm looking at a lot less threat models and only the most difficult ones are only the ones that are getting escalated because 
um, because people can't agree or it's, you know, it's beyond their capability and they're looking for help or whatever. Right. Or, or when I'm only looking at those and I'm not looking at any of the project or product threat models because they're all there and all being taken care of. And I only get a few questions when the senior person is no longer being dragged into every threat model or even only a few, that's another sign that people are doing it, right? When you get, you know, I, I'd get a report, well, this team isn't doing static analysis. When that's only one of several hundred, you know you're there. So there are all these signs that you're doing that. I'm going to talk about a couple more, though, uh, because they're they're interesting to me. We also were watching carefully not only the numbers of things being reported from the outside. Now, we're working at that point. We were working at a security company. So, of course, we're going to get external reports because you're always a target. <laughs> Everybody's after you, right? But, you know, most companies get external reports. We were watching that data like hawks. But the interesting thing is the simple things disappeared. The number of cross-site scripting, we get a couple a year as opposed to one a week when we first started, right? And that those simple things that you can catch yourself with, with common tooling and, 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 and due diligence, they disappeared. And ever more difficult to set up and exploit things were showing up. That's another really good clue that your that your program has been working. It's a real definite metric to watch. What are people reporting from the outside? When they're reporting simple stuff that you could catch with a common DAST uh, dynamic, uh, um, you know, assessment tool, or 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 with a with a good, you know, combination of of static and and dynamic, or or a combined tool, or whatever you're using. Um, when you can catch that stuff and it no longer shows up very often. But what you're seeing is this really difficult to find stuff. I had to turn my head sideways and do all this configuration stuff. And then I found that I could um, muck with your driver, that kind of depth, right? That's the kind of metric to watch because it tells you that you're actually effective. And you want to find that hard to find stuff, but you want people who are good at finding that stuff not to be telling you about some simple, you know, OWASP top 10 thing. You want them to really be working hard and maybe even have to do artificial things that will never show up in the real world because then that lowers the risk a lot, you know, and 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 uh, that's what you want them to to hunt, really hunt and work hard. And And we saw that. We definitely saw that. And we were like, yeah, okay, we have an effective program. How's that for a couple of things you can watch and actually measure and, and if I could add to that too, the other part of it that people, you know, to be a good uh, leader in an organization, you have to understand the business side. You can't just develop code. You have to, if you want to keep going up in, in your levels, um, you have to have the business side. You have to know um, how to do operational management, which is much different than, than IT management in many cases, uh, especially in a development side. You also need to, uh, you know, know how to deal with pieces. There's a variety of things and also politics. 
you know, nobody likes to bring that up, but politics will be there forever. It doesn't matter what type of organization. Hopefully you get it down to a minimum. So when these, the same thing as Brooke, when these things stopped escalating to me, because I had special mentorship programs where I would mentor them in those three primary areas. And all of a sudden, the business side, they're taking care of with their own VPs. They're taking care of with their directors. They're doing the same thing with, I get less and less political escalations where they don't use me as a crutch. Well, we'll just, if we, if it's not what we like, we'll just escalate it to change. You know, it, I got very few of those. And so all these things that Brooke and I both talked about, those, that was a culmination. And when these people said this, because otherwise, you know, somebody could say, oh, we, we're ready. Um, but we knew it because all these things had happened and we knew uh, from watching it for what was it five years it, it had matured to the to the right place where they were uh, basically a self-developing can, can program. I ask, can I just say one 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 yeah, little wow, that's, addition. That was a there lot is of... one point at which I do step in and I'm happy to I'm we we are all I'm all about empowering people to just do it because, you know, people are going to make mistakes. That's OK. You just try to cover that. Right. Um, but, and, and, you know, we all make mistakes. We all get it wrong sometimes, but there is one place when a, one of my security architects runs into their own manager, I never want to put a security architect or a security, any security person trying to fight for security in conflict with their own management. You know, if it's all good and they're escalating, just as James said, yeah. that's great. Fantastic. But if they come to me and say, they told me to not work on this anymore and they don't agree, then we pick that up because I don't ever want to put somebody in conflict with their management. Their bonus, their, yeah. their, their, their um, uh, uh, promotions are all in the hands of that person and you never want to put somebody. So that is one place where we would just grab it and say, we got it. And we would go over that person's head and go to, you know, more senior management yep. and, and we, say, we'll take the flack. Right. We own it ultimately. And that's that's actually one way that that you really tell people you're in their corner for them completely and you got them covered. Um, which is an important part of this. Again, we're back to people. If people mm -hmm. feel like the, that they're just being asked to be spies on their on their teammates, forget it. That's 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 a kiss of death. You, you want them to be partners always and carrying some specialized knowledge that everybody needs um, and showing value. And the moment you put them in conflict with people, that's something I'm watching for constantly. So the less, so that's another metric. The less of those you do, the more, the more your program's actually working. But you will have a few of those. Yeah. yeah all of it's interesting how how we end up kind of coming back to the people, right? Yeah. <laughs> we keep coming back. It's, it's a lot of the people, you know, it's people processing tools, but the process of tools, if, if the people aren't, aren't doing their thing and executing and empowered and they're feeling like you're going to stand up for them, you can, you can spend a hundred million dollars on tools. Yeah. You're never going to get any better. It's all about building that trust. Especially. In yeah. So I think that was, Yeah, that was some. That was just a lot of really good guidance. I, I am literally going to go back and listen to this interview when we post it because I want to hear that again. I wish I could rewind, but um, yeah, I agree. It was. It, that's just. There's just so many good things. Like Brooke, right when you started off, I was think I had this picture in my mind of like this family tree of you started teaching somebody, you know, and then it kind of like it's almost like we have security 
great grandchildren and security, great, great grandchildren that are, you know, people we have taught have begun teaching other people. And that's, I mean, I know you guys are everybody on, on this, this that is interview together. We yep. all, that's what gets us out of bed in the morning. Like at the end um, of the day, we want to like, empower and teach name people. A couple of people yep. here. Um, they, 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 they were the, my dedication in this book. So you've already read these names and I don't mind saying them because they're both, they're fantastic people. But when you look at someone like, like, um, uh, Sandeep Kumar Singh, who's a very quiet man. And today he's a, a really well thought of security leader in, in India. I mean, like speaking at conferences regularly and, and people, people were turning to him years ago at our job. But, you know, when you, when I see that, I'm so thrilled. I'm so blown away that, maybe I could have had just the smallest little piece in, in helping that along. It's, it's, it is the payoff or one of the big payoffs in my life is that, you know, many people, grandchildren are, are great grandchildren who are, who are out there being incredible. Oh, <laughs> one of my interns, I just noticed she's the uh, CISO of some bank in the Middle East. <laughs> yeah go wow that's so cool so cool to have that 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 legacy you know it's about a legacy right like we like getting paid our salaries and stuff like that but you know truly empowering people like this this is this this just it makes you feel good about doing something to make the world a better Definitely. place you know that's um i, I love that about and a lot of people say it's funny how we all kind of tend to congregate to people that think like this. We, we tend to connect with each other because this is what we love to do. But um, before we run out of time, I do, we want to make sure we ask a couple of questions from the book. And so Robert, I'm going to let you go first and ask one of your questions specifically from the book. And then I've got one as well, but uh, Robert, what do you think? What's, what's one question from the book you'd like to ask these guys? Yeah, I think I'll start with chapter one, actually that progression from waterfall to agile to scrum and the question we have is, is Agile dead? Uh, you know, some people have all kinds of thoughts on that, but that's a question. Is Agile dead? Sure. You want me to go ahead and start that one, Brooke? Yeah, Dr. Okay. Hanson, why don't you go ahead, please? Uh, well, I think despite the many articles, and we've seen a ton of them uh, that have proclaimed Agile is dead, I think it's barely taken a glancing blow, and I believe Rumors of the death of Agile have been greatly exaggerated. Two decades later, uh, since it started, the movement, of course, has already succeeded. Project methodologies don't, but they don't die quickly. Um, there will be Agile projects for a long time for the foreseeable future. And I think Agile will reduce in popularity. Nothing really ever disappears in software development. For example, Waterfall is still being used. COBOL is still being written. And Agile's underlying principles and values are now pretty much table stakes for any organization. The degree to which an organization is applying Agile is now a matter of small increments of productivity rather than the revolutionary game changer. It's just not as sexy as it used to be because now you've got to do these smaller increments of improvements. However, I believe the challenge and opportunity for the industry is to move past the misuse of Agile and focus on underlying principles. I can't tell you how many times I've seen 
uh, agile being misused not only within the development side but within other areas of IT and it just it's set up for failure although there's some new uh, project methodologies coming up that fill in the gap for that and the opportunity is to look for competitive advantages and new ways of working like uh, the disciplines of project management that can bring the advantages that agile has but you just want to enhance it uh, for the shortcomings that it has. So new languages, tools, project methodologies will become more popular and reach bubble phase, but eventually people realize that there's really no magic formula or tool to create projects on time. I think that's why people says it's dead because they thought it was going to be this magic tool and nothing else would ever be needed. Um, people are the reason, getting back to people, people are the reason for success or failure while project methodology, technology, and programming language these are the tools used to create software. Uh, there will always be lots of different project methodologies. There'll be others, and there are some now, that are in Agile, and people saying uh, that the new uh, methodologies are great and the old ones are dead. That's just going to continue to happen. So from my perspective, I don't think it's dead. There's a lot of things that are out there that are potentially, I wouldn't say replacing it, but more enhancing it. Brooke, what are your thoughts on that? We probably have no, a little disagreement on that one. Um, I will note that some people do love to fight about something, VI or Emacs. Um, and all the old programmers are going to laugh at that. VI or Emacs. And the number of yeah. arguments over what editor you use, use what works for you. I don't know. Why do I care if you like Emacs unless you screw up the tabbings and I'm doing tabbing in a different way and it screws up all the, all the structuring of the code, then no, I won't like that, but I can just run a script and fix it. Um, so, you know, these are kind of silly arguments. I will point out that to me that scrum is an expression of agile and it's not opposed to agile. It is an expression of agile, at least in my understanding, and I've been through the training, I've worked with it a lot. It's one expression with a whole bunch of um, rituals and 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 uh, other things that, that are an expression, but there's other agile things. It seems to me that agile has become part of the woodwork, and I wonder if people are a little bit upset because their precious baby is now, you know, used in semi-rigorous fashion at huge, you know, global corporations and somehow my baby isn't as pure anymore. I personally don't care. You know, the the core tenets of, of agile thinking that it's better to iterate than it is to try and get it all all at once. I mean, most of all of us have all read the mythical man month and I'll just put that out there. Uh, I know it's an old, really old book, but if you're in development, you should understand that throwing more people at a project just by itself will just slow it down. Um, and, and agile, you know, addresses that problem by turning it into a team. And to me, DevOps just goes another step. It says, Hey, this is working for us. Why don't you ops people who run this stuff come in and we'll do even better communication and more feedback and we'll really, really think through how this whole chain is going to work together and how we can use these tenets of, of iteration and, you know, small work bits that we can control, keeping our work in process really, you know, down, thinking at the end, did we do a good job? What held us up? 
How can we improve? You know, all of these various things that that Scrum uses as part of its expression of Agile have now been offered to the ops community and they can improve. And besides, we're all working together. So, you know, it, to me, that's just another step to say, yeah, come on in. This is great. The water's warm. It's, it's really great. And, and we'll have a great time swimming together instead of, instead of you being in your pool and I'm in my pool and, and I toss you the application ball over there and do something, you know, that, that, that had a lot of problems that, that DevOps solves, but I just see it as one train of thinking. And, and, you know, here's the thing. When I was a programmer for a living, I did a lot of really cool things. But one of the things I had to do repeatedly was write device drivers for every operating system known at that time, uh, real-time, you know, communications device drivers. And I thought to myself sort of at the end of that, if I write another device driver, I will absolutely go crazy. I'm really tired of writing device drivers. And what Agile does and DevOps is get us off the train of a factory floor and turn what is essentially a creative activity back into a creative activity that's joyful, where you can take pride in work. And you do take pride in work because at the end of every sprint, you look around and you say, what could we have done better? And what was in our way? Let's find that one thing that was in our way this sprint and 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 address it in the next sprint. And, and then we'll be better at what we do. And that just calls people. One of the things that I've discovered in my career is when I'm excited, yeah, it puts some people off. It does. But most people go, wow. That's he's excited. I wonder if I can if I can join that and be excited too. And that's better. That's more interesting. I enjoy my work more. And the other thing is when people start to see that things are changing and being more effective, that calls everybody who likes that to you. And so to me, Agile, Scrum and DevOps are all in that same category. Again, we're back at people and culture here. It's calling the people who care to do a great job and have some empowerment and responsibility for that. And that's very powerful. So I don't think that way of thinking, it may get new expressions and there'll be fashions and VI or Emacs, you know, take your choice. Um, I, you know, religious wars about editors are just really, there are better things to think about to me, but um, nevertheless, you're always going to have some people who are, you know, want to make noise. Okay, whatever. Yep. No, it's good. It's and, and it's funny I'm I'm in the next hour or two heading into a sprint retrospective. So oh. <laughs> I'm about to do some of the things that you're talking about here, but um my final question, I have about 100 questions from the book, but I'm going to catch you guys in different places to ask this in the future, but I do want to ask one, but we're going to do a lightning round. Okay? So I'm going to give I literally have a timer in front of me. I'm going to give you each 60 seconds, Dr. Ransom, I'm going to give this question to you first and I'll set it up. I won't. I'm not running in your time right now. I'll I'll set it up and then I'll hit go. And then, uh, but the, in chapter three, you talk about penetration testing. And so, penetration testing for me is a bit of a soapbox. I think as an industry, we put too much focus on it. But you guys talked about it a number of times in the book. You you ingrained it here. And so, I want to get your take on what's the value of pen testing in your eyes. And Dr. Ransom, I'm coming to you starting. Okay. Well, I think in order to ensure that security is cohesively blended into DevOps, 
pen testing should be performed on an ongoing basis to keep up with the continuous developments. Realistically, uh, manually performing penetration tests can be a tedious task as it might slow down the development process. And if that happens, following DevOps principles will yield no benefits. That said, there's a critical need to conduct automated security tests to identify flaws, vulnerabilities, data leakage, and loopholes in a timely manner, uh, but they must be done appropriately for DevOps environment in order to provide value. These tests also need to be conducted at a frequency such as they do not hamper the development speed while at the same time enhancing security. And to start with a properly defined plan for security uh, in DevOps must be laid down to be successful. Nice. 55 seconds. You had five extra seconds, but it was good. Good answer. All right, Brooke, what's your, well, what's your take on uh, in a 60 second answer? Every on pen, pen test is a unique combination of tester skill, tester tools, and tester understanding. That is the tester's threat model of the target system. So that already limits its scope. Okay. I'm not saying we don't need 10 pen tests. I think I made it abundantly clear. It's a key component. We're making up with human knowledge and skill for the lack in what we can do with tools. So it's just another layer of defense in depth because it's another screen because it'll be a different set. But I don't want my 10 pen testers to be trying to do what my tools have already done well. I want them to be doing more complicated things, more difficult things that require a little human analysis and go beyond what the tools will do. So no tool jockeys. I want real pen testers. Um, so that's the first thing is they're unique. Second, the pen test mm -hmm. or the whole testing regime, but especially pen test, is the proof of my threat model. So I need to have my threat model proven. It's a guess. It's a really deeply educated, if, you, if you're doing it well, guess, but mm -hmm. it's a guess. So you get the pen test to come out there and say, yeah, you missed this one right on here. Those defenses are really good. Yeah, that works. Um, these are a little weak and here's why, but you got something there. You know, it's your proving ground. And so there's a mm -hmm. really important feedback loop between threat modeling analysis and pen testing. Finally, I don't ever want to hear they should have pen tested their code because there aren't enough pen testers on planet Earth. They're very expensive. And if we were to cover all 28 million programmers with pen testing, we would put 90% of the businesses out of software businesses out of business because they wouldn't be able to do it. So it's a, it's a, it's a scalpel. <laughs> we want to use it like a, like a scalpel. It's surgery and use it that way. Yep. And pre, I mean, proving the threat model, I had, I guess I've never, you've probably said that a bunch of times and I just never heard that. That is, I'm, I'm going to think about that a lot. It, it isn't and, my and idea. I never thought of pen testing as proving I, my I threat I forgot model. Who, so who told me. Uh, I'm that, sorry to say, and I no, to normally credit people okay. with their work. As you know, I'm really rigorous about that, but I forgot who told it to me. And the moment they said it, you could see the light bulb go on over my head. Right. And so, yeah, it's become part of my song. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, no, that's good. I'm going to, I'm going to think about that some more into the future. And so uh, I'm going to share a key, the key takeaway here and building in security at agile speed. I'm, I'm holding up my copy right here. Um, so people can see um, the link will be in the show notes for where you can get this. Um, there's all the depth that you just heard in this interview. It's in the, it's on those pages. It's in the book, their experience, how they do it. I mean, I had other questions even about security GRC and development of architecture talent. There's a lot of different things that even someone like me, I've been doing this for a while. And I had, I had questions based on things that they've done in their experience that I've never even heard of. So highly recommend get a copy of the book, read it, you know, take it in, think about it and apply it in your programs. And Dr. Ransom, Brooke, thank you for being here with thank us today. You and thank me. you for I'll all that you do that for the community. Thank you. I have quoted Robert's past presentations in my presentations. So, you know, you two are, 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 you know, you talk about us being deep, but, you know, you two are among my not only just favorite people in the industry, but I also learn a lot from you and have over the years. So, you know, it's not it's a two-way street I'm, I'm a big fanboy of you too yep likewise thank you thanks for listening to the application security podcast you'll find the show on twitter at appsec podcast and on the web at www.securityjourney.com slash resources slash podcast you can also find chris on twitter at edge route and robert at robert hurlbutt remember With application security, there are many paths, but only one destination.